That's awesome. God's doing it. We talk about connecting people to Jesus for life change, and that's happening. People's lives are being changed. They want to make a declaration of the transformation that uh, God had done in them. That's why they were doing that. If you're a guest with us, you've never seen anything like that before. It's a, what we call baptism. It's a symbolic of being buried with Christ and being raised to walk in a newness of life. And people do that because they want to let the world know that they're a follower of Jesus. And I know from that day, some of you said that you wanted to do that. You wanted to make that decision to be baptized. And if that is so, and maybe oh, the moments have passed since that, that time and you're still interested in that, um, you can check in your connection card. So if you open up your worship program, this little connection card, it says, I want to be baptized. If you'd mark that on there and maybe even share with us a couple dates that work for you. Maybe you got family coming into town or some type of things happening and uh, these would be good dates for you. And now that we've got this new way that we're able to do it out underneath the awning, the theater's been gracious with us and allow us to do that out there um, and gather you know, a few hundred people <laughs> underneath their awning. And so uh, that's fun. We'll be able to do that. Uh, more often than those of you like to be baptized. I know a few of you too, your, your kids talk to you about it and they want to do it and you like to talk to the kids and make sure they really know Jesus as their savior and uh, understand what's going on. They're not just getting wet in front of a whole bunch of people and so uh, we want to do that. And if you'd like one of our pastors to talk with them, one of our elders or leaders, we would love to do that as well. And then also on that connection card, if you're a guest today, I'm just ask you to take a moment and fill it out. And it really blesses us as a church if you're able to tell us how it is you heard about us as a church. But we want to bless you by giving you a gift. And so when you turn in that card out under the uh, awning that we we're baptizing people at the first time guest kiosk. Um, we want to give you a gift, and we also make a donation to someone else to try and bless them because you were here today. And so, now that we've been praying for you, and uh, we're thankful that you decided to come today, if you'd let us know a little bit about why it is you ended up here, that would be very helpful to us as well. And we've been going through a series we've called Movement. We're now in the last two chapters of the book of Acts. We've been going through the book of Acts for about a year and a half now. Today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 27. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can go ahead and get there. I'm going to pray for us, and uh, then we'll jump into the message together this morning. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much that uh, you've given us the Bible, and just think about Psalm 119 and all the wonderful things that are said about the fact that you speak to us in your word, and uh, God, I pray you'd speak to us this morning, and I know there are lots of things happening in our lives, and uh, people that go away on vacation that come back, people that have um, loved ones that pass away, and people that have struggles that are going on in relationships, people that get new jobs, and that's exciting, and there's all this stuff happening, God, but you are steady, and you remain, and we we know that the... The grass withers and the flowers will fade, but that your word remains. And I pray you'd plant your word in us today. And I pray, God, that you'd speak to us, that we have an encounter with you and you'd change us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We talk a lot about God's promises here at Southbridge. There's a promise that we oftentimes would rather avoid if possible. It's actually a promise from Jesus. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. Isn't that an unfortunate reality that we've all experienced that promise? There is trouble. There are difficulties. There are bad circumstances. Loved ones make decisions you wish you could unmake for them. Uh, marriages don't go the way that you hoped that they would go. Disease comes. Abuse comes. Victimization comes. There's accidents. There's disasters. There's all kinds of stuff that happens. Look at worldwide and you see all kinds of things, whether it's a Christians being arrested uh, in Sudan or the, in Iraq or airplanes disappearing or whatever circumstances you see these major disasters. And then you get into local stuff and you see bad stuff happens with robberies and and then you get into the personal stuff, and there are bad things that happen. And our natural tendency is when we see someone else's disaster, we think about our own difficulties, we think about our own pain. It's part of being compassionate, it's part of being empathetic towards people. And I was riding in the car the other day with my eight-year-old daughter, she's our oldest daughter, and we had just gone to Walmart over here in Briar Creek, on the way back to our house, we were going some back roads, that's the way that we get home, and we turned on this one back road, and as soon as we turned down the road, we saw these sirens. 
this red lights from uh, ambulance, and there was a police car there. And we looked up, and I could see there was a pickup truck that looked like it had driven off the road up into this yard, but it was dented up, and it appeared it had hit another car because there was another car that was parked off, and a few people that must have been witnesses to what happened. And the, the ambulance was the fact the ambulance was there and taking people meant that it was serious. And so my daughter and I were in the midst of a conversation. I said, Ella, we should just stop. Let's just pray. We'll pray for these people. And I prayed, and she prayed. And then she started to make observations about the situation, which I thought were really interesting coming from an eight-year-old. And she said, Dad, it's got to be really hard for the families of whoever was just in this accident. And then she said, because it would be like when Papa fell off the ladder. And she was referring to a disaster, an accident that we had as a family where her grandpa, calls him Papa, where Papa had fallen off a ladder. It's my wife's husband. Or, not done. My wife's husband. My wife's dad. Uh, my wife's dad. I, I, I'm that guy. I don't think I fell off a ladder. Anyway, uh, he fell off a ladder got rushed to a hospital and an ambulance, and so she's associating this stuff, and then she knows what it's like having someone you love and not knowing if they're going to be okay. And the, 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 the tentative situation that is, the delicate situation that is, and, and how scary it can be to think that you might lose someone that you love, and, and she was connecting their disaster with her own disaster. Today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 27 where the Apostle Paul is going through a disaster. And our natural tendency is going to be to think about our own disasters. And we need to think about some of us coming here with smiling faces, and there are some stressful situations going on in our marriage. Some of us are trapped in circumstances, and we don't know if they're ever going to change. Some of us have medical issues, and you can't fix it. And people got loved ones who are making bad decisions. There are difficult situations. There are our own disasters is what we're going to think about. So today we're talking about dealing with disaster. Acts chapter 27 is where we're going to be. We're going to try and cover verses 1 through 26 in Acts chapter 27. If you were with us last week, you may remember in Acts chapter 26 what was happening is that uh, the Apostle Paul was standing trial before the king of the Jews, and he was testifying to him about what it was like to be fully persuaded and trying to tell him to be fully persuaded. And the king of Agrippa said, you don't think you can persuade me in such a short time? Paul said, I don't care how long it takes. I just want you to know Christ the way that I know Christ. Remember, the reason why he's on trial is because he was imprisoned way back in Acts chapter 21. While he was there, he was given a promise in Acts chapter 23 and verse 11. And the promise was, you're going to go to Rome, and you're going to testify about me in Rome. But it's been two years since he's been given that promise. And he spent the last two years sitting in a jail cell waiting for God to fulfill that promise. Now in Acts chapter 27, after that trial, they said, all right, we're sending him off to Caesar. Now he's on his way to Rome. And so he's in this boat, this huge boat. It's a grain ship. He's with it. We end up finding out later in this passage about 275 other passengers. And this is a huge boat. And things aren't going well. The wind is against them because of the time of year that they're traveling. In the first eight verses in Acts chapter 27, verses 1 through 8, we see all the different ports that they go to. What's interesting in the first eight verses, though, is that we realize Luke's back on the scene now. The guy who writes the book of Acts. Because now he's using the first person pronoun, We. We went to this port. We went to this place. The wind was against us. And so what we have here is a firsthand account. He tells it with so many details. And this passage of scripture actually is going to take us probably about three weeks to get through because there's so many details about the storm, about the shipwreck, about what happens after they get back to shore. And it's because Luke's probably reliving this thing as he writes it. He writes it kind of like a novel. Things don't go well in the first eight verses, but they're not terrible yet. What happens in verses 9 and 10 is that they consult with Paul. They have a little powwow with the people on board. And Paul says, I don't think we should go any further. Look at what he says in verse 9, Acts chapter 27. He says, much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. And so he's giving us a time frame here. Remember, no details are irrelevant. This would be the day of atonement. Yom Kippur, 
And this would be in this year, probably about AD 59, it'd be in mid-October, which is a dangerous time to sail. All sailors knew that it was dangerous to sail between September and November. It was deadly to sail in the Mediterranean between uh, November and February. It was like suicidal. They knew that. So what Paul says here is not prophecy from God, it's human wisdom. We know it's not prophecy because he's not right about all of it. He'd be stoned if he were trying to prophesy and he was wrong. He says, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo. And that was true, but not to their lives and to our own lives also. That wasn't true. But from Paul's perspective at that moment, he thought it would be true. And then they decide they're going to go anyways. Verse 13 tells us there's a gentle south wind that began to blow at their backs. And so you could look at it and say, well, it seems like God's leading us out. And so we're going to go out. But they didn't listen to common wisdom. And so they weighed anchor and they sailed along the shore of Crete. And it says, before very long, a wind of hurricane force. The northeaster swept down from the island. So now it doesn't seem like there's wind at our back. So the ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way. They lost control of the boat. The wind began to take control. We gave way to it and were driven along. As we, Luke's there, as we passed to, lee, to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. And when the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together, fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Citrus. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day, and that's significant because the journey they were going to take from the harbor they were in, Fairhaven's Harbor, to a place called Phoenix, which is not Phoenix, Arizona. There is no oceanfront property there. Do not be deceived. But they were going to Phoenix. It should only take them a few hours, just a, just a short time. It says here, the next day, they began to throw the cargo overboard, trying to lighten the ship. On the third day, so now they've been doing this for three days, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. This was voluntary. They threw the tackle overboard. This is when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. And the storm continued raging. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. Verse 21. I love this verse. This gives me comfort and confidence in doing what Paul does here. Paul writes a lot of the New Testament, right? Listen to what he says. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Man, you should have taken my advice. Told you so. Told you this was going to go poorly. But not just so that he could be seen as right. He wants them to know you can listen to what I have to say. Because what he's about to say is way more important than what he said before. So then you despaired yourselves this damage and loss. But, verse 22, now I urge you to keep up your courage. Keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Here's what you put your courage in. Not one of you will be lost. Oh, and the ship will be destroyed. And that can sound like, hey, it's not going to get any worse than this. Certainly it's going to get better. Just hopeful, wishful thinking. Sometimes people say that dumb kind of stuff in difficult circumstances. But Paul's telling the basis for why. Look at the next verse. Last night, an angel of God, whose I am, not the God of the sea, not the God of the earth, not the God that tells the ocean only go this far. He could have said all those things. They had all been true. But he says, the God whose I am, the one who bought me at a price that I belong to, and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. He's reminding him of the promise from Acts chapter 23, verse 11. You're going to Rome. And then he's gracious. He said, And God was graciously given you the lives of all those who sail with you. And these men are going to be saved too. That was God's grace. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen. Just as he told me, just what God said is what he's going to do. Nevertheless, 
we must run aground on some island. That means it's still going to get bad. This boat's still going to crash. Things are going to be bad. And Paul's talking about his disaster here. And our natural tendency when we hear about disasters then think about our own disasters. That conversation I was having with my eight-year-old daughter, Ella, uh, we continued on after we talked about uh, Papa and some of the things that happened in that situation. She began to ask about what was going to happen next. And I talked about people going to the hospital and the ambulance. And she ended up asking me, what about if they don't have any insurance? And I said, well, that could be bad because if they don't have insurance, it can be really expensive. We talked about that very surface level-like. And she said, why is medical stuff so expensive? And I said, well, you're, you're basically buying back your life. You're paying for your health, and we value our health, and so we pay a lot of money for it. And so we're paying for life. We're paying for health. And then she made this connection in her mind that I didn't even see coming. She said, I could never pay for all of my sins. And she connected it to the ultimate disaster, which is one that we've all experienced. The Bible says, for we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all gone our own way. We've all turned our backs on God. We've all done like Eve in the garden where we're wise in our own eyes and we think we can see satisfaction apart from God. We think God's holding on on us. We want to do our own thing. We do what we think is best. It's called rebellion. It's called uh, sin. It's called all kinds of different things. It's called turning our backs on God. But it's sin against God. And because of who we sinned against, because he's an infinite God, not because of what we've done. It's not a measure of who sinned more and what kind of sins count the most. And, but he's an infinite God, so we can't possibly repay him because we've sinned against him. And so my eight-year-old daughter's right. You, there's not enough money. You can never pay for your sin. There wouldn't, if you had all the money in the world, you wouldn't be able to pay for it. There's no amount of good works you can do. So you know what that is? That's a disaster. You've got no hope. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 tells us that before Christ, we are without hope and without God. To tell someone they have hope and they don't have Christ is a lie. You're without hope and you're without God. So what do you need? You need a deliverer. You need someone to rescue you. You need someone to save you. And that's what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross to pay for our sins and then raises again and offers us life. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you've experienced God as the deliverer. God is the deliverer who delivers us from disaster. And that's what we see in this passage of Scripture, that God delivers us from disaster. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've experienced that in your own salvation. Whether you were 8 years old or 80 years old or somewhere in between that spectrum, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you've been delivered. But then in this life, we still have troubles, we still have difficulties, and we see God revealing Himself as a deliverer in this passage. It's also interesting if you think about Scripture as a whole, that oftentimes when we see God revealing Himself as a deliverer, we see Him delivering people from water. Have you thought about that? The imagery that water is in the Bible of death, of disaster, of our enemy. Look in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 8, the flood. Some of you may remember that if you're a little kid and heard the stories and Noah and nothing like what's being portrayed in Hollywood right now, but the, the, the Noah story. That God rescued them from the flood. He's a deliverer. He delivered them. The deliverance story of the Old Testament is when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. God parts the sea, has them walk across on dry land, which is also miraculous. Why is it not all muddy and mucky? They walk across on dry land, and then he destroys his enemies with the water. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that's baptism. That's their baptism, the Israelites, in the Old Testament, which is also interesting. You think about baptism we just celebrated and the symbolism that happens in baptism. The water is symbolic of death. Read Romans chapter 6. And we say, buried with Christ in baptism. That's the death. They're dying to an old way of life. And we say, raised to walk in a new way of life. God delivers them. He rescues them out of that death. 
gives them new life. It's all throughout the Bible. You see people being in the water disasters because of obedience. You see it because of disobedience. You see in the Psalms, the Psalms talk about it as an enemy, as a source of destruction, the waters. You see Jonah, because of his disobedience, is in a storm and gets rescued out of the storm because God still has a plan to move his message forward. You see in the New Testament, you see because of obedience, the disciples are out on the water and, and Jesus is in the boat with them and they're freaking out. And Jesus tells Peter, you come. There's another time where they're in the boat with Jesus. Jesus is sleeping. And he's God of the wind and he's God of the waves. And so he speaks and they're silent in the midst of the storm. You get to the book of Revelation. If you ever thought it was interesting, there's no sea. God's dealt with that calamity. He's dealt with that difficulty. It's gone because he delivers. He's the deliverer. That's what we see in this passage. Try and imagine what it was like to be Paul in this situation. First of all, Acts chapter 23 verse 11 happened two years ago. You were promised you were going to Rome. And in the meantime, you've been waiting for two years for this promise to be fulfilled. I don't know what your patience is like, but two years would be a long time to me. Especially if I was Paul. Think about Paul. Paul's a guy who's fully surrendered to God. He wants to do something for the kingdom. He wants to plant churches. He wants to preach messages. He wants to tell people about Jesus Christ. He wants to see believers built up and so they can then go do the same thing. And, and so he wants to give his life away and he's stuck in a prison for two years. God's just saying, wait. Some of you know what that's like. You want to be used by God. You want to do something. And then God's got a plan for you where he's got you stuck in a situation that you don't want to be in. And you're thinking to yourself, probably, God, there's a, I, I want to serve you and you've got me here. I want to do these things and you've got me here. And he's got Paul on this prison cell. He's not just waiting. He's waiting in prison for two years. Every once in a while he gets to stand trial and then he gets put on a boat. He gets put on a boat with a bunch of other prisoners. Some of those prisoners were probably already convicted of crimes. They were being sent to Rome to be executed for entertainment for the Roman games. There's Julius, the other main character in this passage of Scripture. He's a centurion, a leader of a hundred men, soldiers, that would be in charge of keeping those prisoners there. And there's also the, the sailors that are on the boat, and there's the cargo that's on the boat. This is probably a very large boat. I've read as large as 140 feet long, 36 feet wide, would need about 30 feet of water just to float. So this is a huge boat. We read later there's 275 other passengers. And Paul gets on this boat. Things aren't going great. There's some wind against them, and so they have a powwow, and they ask Paul, what do you think we should do? Is it interesting to you that they ask Paul? Why are they, if you're studying the Bible, you should, you should look for circumstances that are odd, that are, that are strange, and ask yourself the question, why is this here? Why is this happening? Paul's a prisoner. Why is the centurion and the captain of the boat and the owner of the boat asking Paul for advice? <laughs> he's in chains. Hey, come bring that guy over here. He looks like he knows what he's doing. Why are they asking Paul? You know why they're asking Paul? They're asking Paul because Paul, he talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. Three times he's been shipwrecked. He spent a night and a day in the open sea. I don't want to ever do that. Okay, Paul has some great experiences. And I think, man, that'd be awesome to do that. I never want to just float around in the ocean, not seeing what's underneath me and wondering what's happening. He's been through that. And so if you have a guy like that who's been shipwrecked already, who's had these experiences, and he's a leader, and we know he's innocent, because he was found innocent in chapter 23, chapter 24, chapter 25. He's going before Caesar because he has requested this as a Roman citizen. He's most likely, they believe, going to be found innocent there. And so they call him up because of his leadership abilities, because of his experiences. And he says, don't go. But they go. Why do they do that? If they ask him for his advice, why don't they listen to that? He's giving the advice something that sailors would know, that it's dangerous to sail at this time of year. And that's what Luke told us in verse 9 and 10. 
It's after the atonement. It's after the day of sacrifice, after the fast. So it's mid-October. We know it's dangerous. Why? Well, it makes me think of, uh, I was watching a video with our shepherding pastor, uh, Jason Tovey, in his office this week. And as I watched the video, and then I went over to my office and started reading, I was like, that's the same thing. Uh, The video was of a bridge that's here in Durham. It's 11 feet, 8 inches tall. If you Google 11 foot, 8 inch bridge in Durham, this video will pop up. And it's a highlight of all these trucks that are about 13 feet tall that try to drive underneath this bridge. And so they built this bridge apparently like 100 years ago or so. There's a history of it. You can read it. But uh, they built this bridge before there was a height requirement. And it says on it, 11 foot, 8 inches. And there are some trucks that you look at and you're like, I don't know, maybe it could make it. And they show in the video, there must be like cameras all over the place because they have all these cameras there. I don't know. They don't just put a sign on that says, don't do it, like on the thing, but they don't. Some of these trucks, they come flying through and they're trying to get, and some of them, they just barely make it under and it's like shaving cheese off the top of their truck. You know, paint's flying off of there. And it's kind of like, hey, he made it. Then there's some, it's like, what are you thinking? Like, you got no shot, man. It's driving a rider truck or a U-Haul truck or semi-truck. And they come in and they slam into the bridge. It lifts it up. It'll tear, like, part of the trailer off of the thing. And then there's campers. Campers are funny because they drive up to the bridge. And they go real slow. Like, that matters. And they go real slow. And it, like, shaves off the top of the, the, the trailer, the things. You know all those little pop-up, let oxygen in and things? They all just get ripped off there. Why are those people doing that? Haven't they seen the video? <laughs> but even if they haven't seen them, there's different reasons, right? Some of them are ignorant. Some of them don't realize that their vehicle is taller than 11 feet, 8 inches. It says 11 feet, 8 inches right before the thing. They don't realize that. Some of them are just in a hurry. Some of them have cargo to deliver, semi-trucks. Some of them are moving trucks. They want to get it back on time. That's the same thing that's happening here. Some of these sailors are ignorant. They don't realize how dangerous this really is. Some of them are just in a hurry, which is human nature. See, some things don't change. Some of them are doing it because of money. They're on a grain ship. There's cargo to be delivered. We've got to drop these prisoners off. That's our job. That's what we're getting paid to do. And so they want to get paid. So they're doing the same thing. Now, the real summary answer is it's dumb. But the reality is there are a lot of reasons why we do dumb things. And they did dumb, something dumb. Verse 14 says what happens. It says, before long, there's a hurricane force wind called the Northeaster that swept down on them from an island. The ship was caught by the storm. The wind takes control of the boat. So we gave way to it and we're driven along as we passed from the lee. And he kind of gives us some geography here from the lee of an island called Kata. We were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, which had been being pulled behind them with ropes and would be full of water. And so they pulled that in. It says, when the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes underneath the ship, which would be a technique to try and hold the boat together, this wood boat together that's probably taking on water, probably has cracks in it. And so they're putting ropes underneath the boat and cranking it probably with a winch to, to hold it together. Fearing they would run aground on the sandbars of Citrus. Now, this is an interesting statement of geography because Citrus is about 400 miles away from where they're at. They're not going to run aground on Citrus. What Luke's telling us here is either they're so disoriented they have no idea where they're at or their worst nightmare is about to happen. This is their greatest fear. They're doing everything they know to do, which is what we do in disasters, right? We, just do, we do everything we know to do. And they lower the sea anchor let the ship be driven along. He says, we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day, they began to throw cargo overboard. On the third day, they were planning on only being on this boat for a couple hours. Now it's been three days into this thing. Can you imagine being pulled up on the wave and then dropped down off the wave? And there's a hurricane going on, so you can't see anything. Water's just blowing everywhere. You ever have motion sickness? Can you imagine being trapped on this boat? Have you ever been trapped in an airplane sick? Have you ever been sick and got on an airplane? Or on a train? Something that can't, you can't stop it. That you're gonna continue, it's going to continue to go. There's no getting out of the situation. You can't go anywhere. That's where they're at. 
We related they haven't eaten anything for days. This goes on for two weeks, verse 27 tells us, 14 days. They're not, not eating because there's no food. There's still grain on this boat. We see that later. They're not eating because either they're seasick or they're depressed. Have you ever been so depressed you don't want to eat? Or they're stressed. Have you ever been so stressed out you didn't want to eat? You forget that you missed meals because you're so stressed about something. That's the state of mind that they're in. So they begin to throw their gear overboard. It says on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard their own hands. It says when neither sun nor stars appeared. Now think about what that means. Not only do they not know when it's night and day, but that's their navigational device. They have no GPS. There's no, this is before the compass. Okay, there was no, uh, Siri, how do I get to Rome from here? None of that. No option here on that. So they have no idea where they're headed, where they're at. They've got no gear. They've thrown it overboard with their own hands. That was to try and make the ship float. They've got no sun. They've got no stars. There's no moon. But worst of all is the next part of the verse. There's no hope. Look at what it says. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. You can underline that word. It's important. We'll come back to that word, saved. No hope of being saved, of being rescued, delivered from these circumstances. And so they're in a situation that's hopeless. Have you ever been there? It's in a situation, uh, this year was a blessing, it was an opportunity. It was in New York City with uh, two of my oldest girls and my wife. And we were there and we were seeing some of the, the historic sites there, the Statue of Liberty. And we were able to go to uh, the 9-11 Memorial. For those of you who remember September 11th. Um, you know, that's one of the greatest disasters that's happened on our American soil and, and in our lifetimes. And you probably remember exactly where you were and exactly what was happening in your life at that moment. We were taking our girls there. Our girls weren't alive when it happened. So we're trying to tell them about that day and trying to tell them about what happened and what it was like for us. And I didn't, I didn't know anybody that died that day. Uh, I wasn't there when it happened. But I remember hearing about it, turning on the news. And then I feel like I watched the news for days in a row. And there were no commercials. I don't remember if there were now, but it, it felt like that. I remember some of the things I saw. And so I was telling the girls about what it was like. And telling about all the people that died that day. About 3,000 people. And talking through some of those things. So there's going to be some memorials there. And when we get there, we're going to behave like we would if we were at uh, a cemetery. That's what I told them. So we're in this cab and we're riding there. And I'm, I'm telling them about this situation. It's going to be respectful. People are paying their respects. And you just be quiet. So we're going to go there. We're going to see these names. And there's big pools, these big memorial pools. And they've got all these names listed on. I took a picture of one of those. Just, it's just names and names and names. And we got there and we're walking around these different names. And everybody's so quiet. You know, they're thinking about the situation and, and what probably they were doing that day and who these people are. And as we're walking around and looking at the names, I remember thinking to myself, I wonder which ones were the ones. Because that day, the, the thought that stuck in my mind was I remembered seeing people jump from the building. Remember those live, they were going to edit stuff out. There was a live uh, video news of this happening. And people were inside this building. They were jumping out. And I remember as we're walking through those names there at the 9-11 memorial thinking which ones were the ones that jumped and I didn't know I don't know which ones were but I remember on that day thinking to myself how bad is it inside that you would you know what's going to happen if you jump that you would jump it's bad to the point where there's no hope like they're talking about in this passage there's no hope of being rescued there's no hope of delivery there's no hope that the circumstances are going to change. And so they're jumping. 
And here there's no sun, there's no stars. We've been doing this for days. People aren't eating. We're seasick. There's no hope. We're trapped. And some of you know what it's like to have no hope. The NIV is actually not a great translation here. It's not inaccurate in a sense, but it doesn't give us the best picture here. If you have an English standard or a New American Standard version, uh, you have a better idea of what this is supposed to say. It says here that they gave up all hope. They didn't give up hope. What Luke actually wrote here is that hope was taken from them. There really wasn't hope. It wasn't just that they decided to be pessimistic. It wasn't just that they, they thought to themselves, oh, I've got nothing else to wish in. No, all the, because of the circumstances being so bad, hope was taken away from them. Have you ever felt that way where hope's taken away? Somebody dies, you're not bringing them back. The hope of them coming back, that's gone. Some of you feel like that in a, in a marriage situation. There's no, this is a hopeless situation. Or you've got a, a loved one who's making decisions. You wish you could change that they would make. You're in some circumstance that you wish you could change and you can't. A health situation, financial situation, whatever it is. And there's no hope. It's in those moments that we ask some of the toughest questions. And we've all been there. In this world, we will have trouble. Jesus promises we'll go there. In fact, think about Psalm 23, that famous psalm. You hear it at funerals all the time. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus didn't promise we wouldn't go through the valley of the shadow of death. He promised he'd be with us. But it's in those moments that we oftentimes ask questions like, are you here? Where are you? Do you care about what's happening? Is this a mistake? Or did I do something? Am I being punished? And ultimately we're asking the biggest question, which is one word, why? Why? God, you, you tell the ocean to only go so far. You could have stopped this storm. Why haven't you stopped this storm? Why is this happening? Paul's here because he's being obedient. Think about the disciples. They get in a boat and the storm comes. They're terrified and Jesus calls Peter to come out of the boat. Why are they there? We don't talk about that because they obeyed Jesus. That's why they're in the storm. So oftentimes we just talk about it like it's Jonah. Like if there's difficulty, it must be because something went wrong. Well, maybe there's more to it than that. Maybe God has a plan. I mean, that's what we take comfort in the midst of the situation is that God has a plan even in the storm, even in the disaster, even in the difficulties and the trials and the troubles and the the things that we hate, that he has a plan, and he does. And you know what the plan is? The plan is to make you his witness if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. If you're yet to follow Jesus, his plan is to bring himself to you. He's either using you to bring himself to others, or he's bringing himself to you. That's what he does in the difficult situations. That is his plan in the situations. It's Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, the uttermost parts of the world. And some of you might be thinking, man, I'm tired of hearing that. We've been in Acts for a year and a half. It's all about Acts 1.8. And you're thinking, well, we'll be glad when we get out of Acts. Well, let me tell you, here's the bad news. It's still all about Acts 1.8. If we get to Galatians, if we get to Ephesians, if we get to the Corinthians, if we get to Romans, we get to, that's what the, the church is all about. It's being his witness. So some people act like, like outreach or evangelism or whatever phrases we want to put on it, care out in the community. That's like a ministry of the church. That is not a ministry of the church. That is the mission of the church. And some people act like evangelism is some specialization that a few people have the ability to do. I've actually heard, we're so sophisticated as Christians, especially if we've been to a few Bible studies, and talking about our disobedience. And I've heard people say this statement. Hopefully you've never said it. If so, I hope you're offended. Uh, people have said, I don't do evangelism. It's not my gift. I'm not gifted in evangelism. When did evangelism become a gift? It's not a gift. It's a command. You say, well, Ephesians chapter 4, some are pastors, some are teachers, some are evangelists, some are prophets. Those are offices. Those aren't gifts. As I say, you're not an evangelist. If you're a Christian, you know what? You're a witness. And his plan is to move you to be a better witness for him. And so he uses your disaster so you can witness for him. 
So that's the plan. If you're not, then he wants to bring himself to you in the midst of the difficulty. He's either using you to bring himself to others, or he's using the circumstances to bring himself to you. That's what he's doing here with these sailors. That's what he's doing with Paul. Paul, you, here's the deal. You're going to Rome so that you can then testify to Caesar. But in this situation, you're also going to testify to these sailors. But where your hope comes from, but where your trust is at. You're going to be my witness. Now, to say that we don't want to do that, it's, when I say it's disobedience, it's like this. You think about those people that are jumping out of that building in 9-11. How bad the inferno must have been inside and the things that they saw inside that building, terrible, unspeakable, I'm sure. If you were there that day with a ladder and to say that like, your gift is not evangelism, it'd be like saying, um, I'm not a fireman. Well, you got a ladder. You've got hope if you're a Christian. You've got the deliverance if you're a Christian. You've got the answer. What well, is not my job? I'm specialized in something else. Are you kidding? You say, well, I just I want to go deeper with Jesus. Let me ask you the why question. Why? Why do you want to go deeper with Jesus? You know, the answer has to be, I want to love him more. I'm going to get to know him. You know what happens when you love him more? You love what he loves. You know what he loves? Other people. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why? So then you can live on mission. That's what it's about. Loving God. Loving other people. Living on mission. So I'll, I'll give a message, you know, probably sometime in the next year about how we should all get in a group and we should be in community. You say, well, that's what I want. I want a church that's more like, we'll sing kumbaya with one another. I'm kind of campy. No, no, no. That's not why, though. We want to love one another. We want to be together so that then we would serve one another, put other people first, and ultimately that would be a witness to other people as they see our relationships with one another. That's why we live in community, not just so we can be campy. Listen, if you don't want to be on mission, if you want to be campy, this is not the church for you. You need to go to a different church. We're going to continue to push forward, even when we're out of Acts in a few weeks, we're going to continue to push forward with the mission that we'd be his witnesses because that's what God's doing. That's what he's doing in the difficulty. That's what he's doing in the disasters. He's using you and making you more and more of his witness. He uses the suffering. And what you can take comfort in is that he has a plan in it. It wasn't that he just decided, you know, let go of the steering wheel. and Oh, whoops, look what happened in their life. I had to figure that out. He's got a plan the whole time. I was listening to John Piper do an interview about suffering recently. He gave an analogy I loved. It was actually, he took it from Corey Tenboom. Uh, if you don't know who Corey Tenboom is, she, was, uh, she lived during World War II and she hid Jews and was in prison because of that. She knew suffering. And she talked about suffering like a tapestry. She said, God's weaving together a tapestry. If you know what a tapestry is, a cloth uh, that you make a, a beautiful piece of art, a uh, picture out of. And uh, she said, the problem is that God's looking at the front side of the tapestry and we're on the back side. And so God's weaving together a beautiful picture of redemption, a beautiful picture of his glory. But all we see are the tangled up strings. And so we get frustrated and we get confused. And, and the question is ultimately, will we trust him? Because he's got a plan for you in it. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. It says that we, were God's, we are God's workmanship. That's his tapestry. He's weaving together, making a beautiful picture of redemption for his glory. Created in Christ Jesus to do good work. So he's planned this all out in advance. Before time started being calculated, God's planned for you the works that you're doing and the difficult circumstances you're in and how he's going to bring redemption through that because that's what God does. He brings redemption through our difficulties. He brings triumph through our tragedies and in our disasters, he shows himself trustworthy. The question for us is, will we trust him? Because disasters not only reveal God as a deliverer, disasters also show us our dependence. Disasters of life, the difficult things that we go through, the tragedies, the trials reveal to us who we depend on and what we depend upon. Talk about here hope. If you want to know what you depend upon, if it was taken from your life, you would lose hope. So what is it that if it was taken from your life, you would lose hope if your child died, if your marriage fell apart, if money was taken from you, 
if you lost your job, if you lost your reputation, if you lost some ministry opportunity, if you lost what, that you would then feel hopeless. If you answer that question, now you know what you depend upon. And now you know you're idle because the only thing for a follower of Jesus Christ that should cause us to lose hope is if God were taken from us. And he can't be. He can't not keep his promises. He can't lie. The Bible says that God can't lie. All of his promises are yes in Christ Jesus. He promises us to never leave us or forsake us. He doesn't promise us smooth sailing. He doesn't promise us comfort. He promises us trouble. But he also promises he'll be with us in the trouble. That he is the one that's worthy of trust in the trouble. So Paul says to these sailors, he stands up to them and he challenges them in their trust. They said, they've given up hope of being saved. Verse 20, it's a Greek term, sozo. And scholars debate about why Luke spent so much time in chapter 27 and 28 talking about the storm, talking about the shipwreck. Why, you know, sometimes it's like, he went to this place, this place, can't pronounce them, can't pronounce them. And then he ended up here and this is what happened. But here he's got all these details and all this stuff that and how they tied ropes around the boat and the lifeboat was going out and the wind and for one day and then for three days and he's calculating on what happened on each day and throw the tackle overboard. Why is he saying all that stuff? And the answer is that word, saved. And we see it repeatedly through this section of scripture. We see it in verse 20. We're going to see this theme of being rescued from the storm all throughout. Next week you'll see it in verse 31 and verse 34 and verse 43 and verse 44. Then when we get to chapter 28, you're going to see it in verse 1. You're going to see it in verse 4, being rescued from the storm. What Luke's talking about here is the whole thing is deliverance. Now what he's talking about in these immediate contexts is obviously being delivered from the storm, the circumstances. But... Luke's writing this, he knows he's not just writing it as a historic account, he's writing it for readers, people that are going to be part of the church, he's writing it to believers, and he knows what the term saved means to believers. It means being delivered from the ultimate disaster, it's our salvation. What he's showing us here, and what I'm about to read, is this, that the sailors are going to realize that this is the God whom they can trust to be saved from the difficulty of life, then maybe they can trust this God with their soul. That maybe the God who parted the Red Sea is worthy to be trusted with our souls, Paul, after telling them, I told you so, in verse 21 and verse 22 says, But now I urge you, I strongly exhort you to listen to these words. Keep up your courage. What he's talking about here is not courage like we talked about in our man message, being bold, or like we talked about throughout Acts. The word for courage here is only used three times in the New Testament. Two of them are in this passage. One's in James chapter 5. It means this, cheer up. King James translates it that way. Cheer up. Be happy. (laughs) I'm hopeless. And this guy stands up and says, be happy. But he tells them why. Cheer up, because not one of you will be lost. Now you've got my attention from one of these guys. Only the ship will be destroyed. I don't care about the ship at this point. Last night, an angel of God, whose I am, who bought me, who delivered me, who I belong to. I was bought at a price. First Corinthians chapter 6, I'm not my own. I've been bought at a price. Not just the God of the sea, because all of these guys hoped in the God of the sea. Every seaman would make offerings to their idols and would pray to their false gods. And so what Paul's saying is the God who delivered me with the ultimate deliverance, my God, they're not all the same. They don't all end up at the same place, Paul's saying. My God who bought me, he stood beside me. His angel stood beside me, the one whom I serve or worship, and said, do not be afraid, Paul. And he reminds me of his promise. You must stand trial before Caesar. And then he added to the promise. Graciously, not because these sailors are anything special, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, man. For I have faith in God. You keep up your courage because of my faith, he tells them. 
I have faith. Not, he's going to save you as long as you trust Jesus. Not, he's going to get you out of these circumstances as long as you'll believe in the God that I believe in. And he's showing them, I believe in the God who's a deliverer. He's going to deliver you from these circumstances, a promise they have we don't have because we might die in our circumstances. He says, he's going to save you from these circumstances. So keep up your courage, men, because I have faith that it'll happen just like he told me. But things are going to get bad. The boat's going to get ruined. There's going to be a crash, he tells them. But God delivers. And what he's showing them is that God delivers from the difficulties. He delivers from the worst circumstance possible, the one whom I was purchased by. He stood with me. He said he's going to keep his promise. Acts chapter 23, verse 11. And I believe in his promise. See, disaster has this way of simplifying life, doesn't it? Those of you who've been through it. Something that bothered you on Monday, and then there's a tragedy on Tuesday. All of a sudden, you don't care about what happened on Monday. Because what happens is you realize what really matters in life. It's like what happens with Jesus and his disciples in John chapter 6. People are coming around Jesus. They love that he's feeding them. He, loved, they sa- he says things that are challenging to them. They're just loving Jesus, doing all these miracles. It's like a big love fest. And then Jesus gives them some tough teaching, and they all leave. And then Jesus turns to his 12 disciples, knowing that Judas is there, knowing the one who would betray him was there, and says, do you want to leave too? And then Peter said, where are we going to go? You have the words. You've got the words of eternal life. Because in those difficult situations, sometimes that's all we got. His promise. What are his promises to us? Because we don't have this promise. We're not promised we'll make it to Rome. We're not promised we won't die in the circumstances. We're not promised they're not going to get worse. So what promises do we have? And I'm going to tell you, as a church, I want, if there's one, I just have you, one, this would be a great spot for me to tell you a bunch of promises. I was praying with the guy before the first service, going through a disaster, difficult situation in his life, and I prayed, God, the peace surpasses all understanding. Philippians chapter 4 promised that you'd have that. We can talk about that. We can talk about casting our cares upon Jesus. First Peter 5, 7. We can talk about how he takes our burdens in Matthew chapter 11. There's lots of, there's, I could give you 50, 100 promises that apply to difficult circumstances that we could cling to. But as your pastor, there's one I want you to have because it's a game changer. It changes everything. But it's so familiar and being quoted that some of you won't even hear it if I say it. And it's this, that God has a plan. His plan is to make you his witness. It doesn't mean that things are going to go easy. And he has a purpose, like we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, and he's going to fulfill his purpose. Whether you're obedient like the disciples on the water or whether you're disobedient like Jonah, God's going to accomplish his plan. And he says it in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And he says this, For we know that God works all things. See, what we oftentimes do at this moment is go, but not my thing. No, all things, it says here. In the Greek, that means everything. All things. Your terrible circumstance, your crazy spouse, your difficult health diagnosis, your financial circumstances. There's no hope in your circumstances. But God works all things for the good of those who love him. Our problem is we have a different view of good than what he has. Our view of good is comfort and ease. His view of good is that he receives glory, which is why you were created. He's going to receive glory through your circumstances. For all those who've been called according to his purposes, and what are his purposes? His purposes is to make you into his witnesses, to bring himself to you if you're not a follower of Jesus, but if you are a follower of Jesus, to bring himself through you to other people. And he says he's going to do that. And he does it in the most difficult circumstances, which we see throughout Scripture. He turns tragedy to triumph, difficulty to redemption. Just look, it's in the book of Acts. How does he do it? We look at Acts chapter 7. 
You look at the guy named Stephen. He's, he's, being, in a difficult, he's in, being persecuted in a difficult circumstance in his disaster because he was obedient to Jesus, and he gets killed. Say, so Scott, well, I didn't write this message. That's a terrible story of deliverance. He didn't get delivered. He died. No, no, no. Listen to what happened. That God used this ultimately for the first time to take the gospel to Samaria, Acts 1.8, and then to the othermost parts of the earth. In fact, he used it as a key part of Paul coming to know Jesus Christ as a Savior. So ultimately, he used it indirectly for you and I to come to Christ. How many people used a verse that Paul wrote to lead you to Christ when you trusted Jesus? He used it for his good, for the saving of many people. And say, well, yeah, that's the book of Acts. Of course, Luke, the way he's going to construct Acts, a literary device, he's going to use it in that way. Well, go to the book of Genesis. Pick a book in the Bible. Pick a disaster. Pick a difficult situation. And what God does is he brings himself glory. Why? So that multiple people will come to know him. Look at the book of Genesis. A guy named Joseph gets traded into slavery by his brothers because they're jealous of him. Then gets falsely accused of a crime. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's been obeying the whole time. And then he gets put in jail, sits in jail for years. After that, years later, becomes the second in command in Egypt. And then there's a disaster, a famine in the land. And his brothers, Israelites, stand before him. He has the power to destroy them. But instead he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. That sounds like Romans 8, 28. It's in the Old Testament. To accomplish what is now being done. What is it? The saving of many lives. That's Ephesians 2. That's Acts 1, 8. You're saving, you're delivering, you're rescuing, you're showing yourself a deliverer. You don't think you do it through your circumstances? He did it through the worst circumstances in all of history. Think about it. What's the worst, most hopeless situation in all of human history? And you might think of yours right now, but it's not. The worst one is the cross of Jesus Christ. Pretend you don't know what happens on Easter. Pretend you don't know what happens three days later. What's the worst moment in human history is that God died on a cross. Darkness covers the earth. Jesus, who's fully God, fully man, cries out on the cross, my God, my God, to the Father, why have you forsaken me? That's the most hopeless moment in history. And it's where we get our greatest hope. You don't think God can, if God can redeem that, you don't think God can redeem your circumstances, redeem your situation, redeem your hopelessness? Because God delivers. And let me share something with you. As a preacher, this would be a great spot for me to put in a story of how God's delivered someone in our church, about how God's delivered someone from addiction, how he's delivered someone from, uh, you know, some terrible marriage situation. How, how some, and some of you shared these stories with me. I've shared them before. People getting delivered from pornography. People getting delivered from cocaine addictions. We have people do their celebrate recovery stories. Just had a marriage one this past weekend. How God delivered them in a difficult marriage. And got all these things that are happening in our church. God's changing lives. I could pick those dramatic stories. How some of you have your one, you know, that you've been praying for. And then you share the gospel with them. They trusted Christ. We've got those stories. Here's the danger in sharing that story with you. There are some of you who trusted Christ when you were six. And some of you, the worst sin that you've done happened in your mind. You were lustful, you were covetous, you were prideful, you were hateful, but you never actually physically murdered someone. You never actually committed adultery. You never actually stole something, physically stole something. And so when you hear those stories, you think to yourself, that's awesome that God can do that. That's good for them. And you think it doesn't apply to you. Let me remind you what my eight-year-old daughter said. She's eight. Now, from a father's perspective, she has sinned. But from a human perspective, I started thinking about, but it's nothing compared to what I've done and probably what many of you have done, even those of you who were saved when you were young. And she said, I could never pay for my sins. Never pay for your sins. And you're right. 
That means you know deliverance. You know what it is to be delivered from the ultimate circumstances. You know what it is to be delivered from your sin and your hopelessness. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, you are without hope and without God in this world. You're foreign to God. You've turned your back on Him. You've rebelled on Him. He brought you to, you to Himself. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know deliverance. Now, you might die in the circumstances you're in right now. Because you don't have a promise you'll make it through. But you know what you do have a promise of? He has a plan in it. And he's going to use it for his glory. The question is, are you going to be part of the plan like the disciples were in the boat when they were being rescued? Or are you going to rebel against the plan like Jonah? Either way, he's going to accomplish his plan. The question is, will you trust him? What do you depend upon? Let's pray. Father, we come before you so grateful that you loved us and you loved us so much that you gave your son Jesus Christ to die for us. And we, we trust that if you can take that circumstance, the most difficult, most hopeless time in all of history, and you can turn it for our good, for your glory, for the redemption, for the saving of many lives, like Joseph talks about in Genesis 50, 20, the saving of many lives through the cross, then you can use our cancer, our past sins, our tragedies, our difficulties, the miscarriage of a child, the loss of a relationship, you can take all that stuff and save people through it and sanctify people through it and change those of us who are believers into better and better witnesses for you, chiseling away the stuff that doesn't look like you and changing the things that are in our hearts that we hope in that are not you. And Father, I pray you would do that. I pray that you would turn our hearts to you. I pray for those who might not know you that are in difficult circumstances. Maybe they came today or they're listening online today because... They just want hope. They just want an answer. And God, I pray that you'd give them your son, Jesus Christ. Reveal him to them in this moment. It's because of him, because of his death, because of his glory, because of the hope he gives, because of his presence in our lives that we say in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.